Welcome back to CFO Weekly, where we're talking with financial leaders about how to build efficiency in their teams, create time for strategy, and ultimately get results with your host, Megan Weiss. Let's jump right in. Today, my guest is Ken Wentworth, otherwise known as Mr. Biz. Ken is a fractional CFO and strategic business partner who helps business owners run their companies more profitably and more efficiently. He is a three-time best-selling author, a six-time world record holder, and an award-winning host of Mr. Biz Radio. Ken, thanks so much for being my guest again today. Yeah, absolutely, Megan. I'm, I'm honored to be here and, and humbled to be a repeat guest. So uh, looking forward to it. Yeah, it's been a while since we last spoke. When, when was that? Uh, yeah, it's probably been, it's been a couple of years, I would guess. Yeah. Actually, probably pre-pandemic even. So yeah, I and mean, it's hard to believe that that's already been, you know, two plus years. Time has flown by, but uh, I can definitely see that you've been very busy. Uh, you recently published a new book, and I'm excited to talk about that today, as well as some of, uh, as well as some advice on multiple topics regarding the CFO role and small to medium-sized businesses. So let's get going. Sure. Sounds good. Uh, As always, let's start with you. And if you can kind of give us a recap again of your career journey and and how it is that you got to where you are today. Yeah. So I I had a, let's just call it a 20 plus year career, Megan. We don't have to get specific on dates. Okay. Uh, You could tell by my gray hair uh, enough enough about my age. But anyway, um, I worked at uh, JP Morgan for you know 20 plus years was fortunate enough to be able to do a lot of different really cool things um it, mostly in the financial side of things but I also worked in different operations groups uh, I worked in private equity for a while um was able to do just do a lot of cool things under that JP Morgan umbrella worked in many different pieces and parts of the business uh and got exposed to a lot of really cool things and just had reached a point where I'd always wanted to kind of do my own thing and have my own business didn't really know what that was going to look like. And in my corporate career, I got to a point where, um, you know, I had two revenue generating ideas uh, within about a three or four month period that both got sort of put on the back burner because of some of the the, the, the bad things you hear about large companies, right? Some of the bureaucracy, some of the red tape, et cetera. And uh, after the second one, it was like, okay, this is it. This is, this is the sign. This is what yeah. I needed. Um, and so I literally, as I tell people kind of odd and people look at me like I'm just crazy, which I might be a little bit, but <laughs> yeah, 20 plus years with a company. And then you decide to, to go do your own thing. That's, that's courageous. Well, and, and Megan, here's the, the, the odd part about it is that I, first of all, I didn't know what, what I was going to do. I had no idea what business I was going to start, what I was going to do. And second of all, I literally made a decision. Now, I had been mulling and all, again, I always wanted to kind of do my own thing. So it wasn't like it was completely all out of the blue. But that second idea that got shelved on an elevator, a 48-floor elevator ride at 270 Park Avenue, headquarters for J.P. Morgan, I'm riding the elevator down to the bottom floor because I leave the building to go to my next meeting. And during the elevator ride, I was like, okay, that's it. I'm going to resign. <laughs> so uh, the funny part about the story is I got to the airport that evening and I called my wife and um, ironically enough, part of the meeting was uh, my boss telling me I was gonna be promoted. So I was in the top 3% of people at JP Morgan. I was gonna be promoted to the top 1%. And so I told my wife that, and you know, my wife's a nurse, not a business person whatsoever, but she said, oh my gosh, it's great. You're getting promoted. Like all your hard work's paying off, blah, blah, blah. And I said, and by the way, I'm gonna leave. <laughs> and she said, wait, wait, oh, your plane's leaving. You got to go because your plane's leaving. I go, no, I'm going to resign. She's like, excuse me? What? What? You told me you're getting promoted and now you're you're telling me you're going to resign. So she said, uh, why don't you take a nap on the ride home, uh, on the plane ride home, and we'll talk about it. And uh, once I explained it to her, she understood. I think secretly she probably thought I was a little crazy, but I think she trusted me enough to know that, you know, I would figure it out. And, yeah. uh, and, and I'm, I'm grateful enough to, to say I, I, I was able to figure it out and I'm completely blessed in what I do now. Um, I'm a business strategist slash fractional CFO. Um, I, I hate to say just fractional CFO because I take a very holistic approach when I work with clients, not just, you know, sort of the numbers side of things. Um, because of the broad experience I was able to, to get at JP Morgan, 
I'm able to approach things. And the way I look at it is when I go into business, I, I try to look at what's working and how do we accentuate that? What's not working and what do we need to do about that? How do we fix it? Do we need to stop doing that? Um, you know, whatever that may be. And it comes in a lot of different forms. It's not just looking at the numbers. Of course, that's a big part of it, but it's not just that. And so, you know, I, I left uh, JP Morgan in 2015. So I'm coming up on about seven years now. I've been um, sort of uh, left the corporate world and been out uh, more in the entrepreneurial space. Yeah, obviously a decision you haven't once regretted. <laughs> no, and it's, it's really funny because, I, you know, my corporate career, it wasn't like I was fed up. It wasn't, uh, I wasn't frustrated. I didn't go, oh my gosh, I can't wait to get out of this. I loved my time at JP Morgan. They treated me very well. Um, I had a fantastic career, again, in regards to being able to do a lot of different really neat things. Um, and, you know, just and even those two ideas that were shown, it wasn't, I wasn't like thoroughly frustrated. Like, that's it. I'm out of here. It wasn't that at all. It was just like, I, I think subconsciously I was looking for a sign because I had wanted to do something on my yeah. own. And I was like, that's it. This is it. This is the sign. This is the yeah. second one. And I knew that I could help more people. And that second idea getting shelved was, was an indication to me that it, I wasn't going to be able to help as many people there. Whereas I could go and figure out something else outside of the corporate world where I can be able to impact and help more people. And so that's, that was sort of the, the decision, uh, the straw that broke the camel's back, I guess. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, all of the, the things you learn working for such an amazing and successful company, um, it's nice to be able to share that with maybe, you know, smaller, medium-sized businesses that don't have access to that kind of knowledge. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and by the way, like, I'm so blessed that what I do now, and it, this sounds so corny and cheesy and cliched, but it's not work for me. I absolutely love what I do. Um, if anything, I have to pull back the reins um, because, again, it's not like work. Someone asked me <clears throat> on an interview several months ago, they said, well, how many hours a week do you work? And I said, I have no idea. And they said, what? You have no idea how many hours a week you work? And I said, no. And I said, I, I, you know, I hadn't really even thought about it. And I said, I think it's because Again, it's not work to me. It's not like I'm going in and punching a clock. You know, I've got clients, you know, I'm in Eastern uh, time zone. I've got clients on the West Coast that are three hours different than me. So, you know, sometimes I'm, I've got to call it 9 p.m. at night, my time. Yep. Um, but it's not that big a deal. I mean, I work it around uh, my family time. I work it around, you know, all, all that. And I have the freedom and flexibility to be able to do that. And I love what I do. So, you know, I will look for ways when I'm at home and not in my uh, my normal office. I have a home office as well. You know, when I'm at home in the evening, there's always a sweet spot. I'm going to share a little secret, Megan. There's always a sweet spot in the evening. So my wife gets home from work. The kids will get home from school. And there's always a sweet spot after dinner where everyone disappears, goes and gets their showers, works on homework. And I'll sneak in, quote unquote, sneak into my home office and do 20 or 30 minutes of worth of work while they're all doing that. because. I'm looking forward to it, you know? Yeah. <laughs> you know, I'll, I'll stop for dinner. And I'll be like, man, when I go in the office for my little sneak in 20, 30 <laughs> minutes, what am I going to work on? You know, um, because I just love it. I, I really, really enjoy it. So I'm, I'm very blessed to have been able to find, you know, this, this thing that I do that I love so much. Yeah, absolutely. That is a blessing. So as you look back uh, on your career, whoa, of all of the positions you've held, which was the most pivotal or instrumental in making you a business leader and, and why? Uh, probably uh, the last role that I had when I was at JP Morgan. And you know, there's a lot, of, a lot of different roles I had over the years that contributed to it, of course. But I think in regards to um, honing and refining my leadership skills, it had to be that last role because the last role I had uh, I was the head of corporate planning and analysis. And so I had teams, um, and especially in today's day and age with post-pandemic, I had teams in six different locations um, on, on different continents, you know, big different, big time zone differences, et cetera. And so I had to learn how to lead remotely, first of all. I had to learn how to have a cohesive team that were in six different locations and needed to work together. I had to learn, learn, you know, the time zone management yeah. um, and being able to handle that and what works most effectively with that. 
And so again, looking back, you know, once the pandemic hit and, you know, everyone went to Zoom and, you know, you're doing all that sort of thing and, and really, and it's continued, right? People have continued with a lot of remote and virtual uh, meetings. And so I got a head start on that by having teams all over the place. And again, really, I, I think the thing I learned most from that role was is in regards to leadership is, again, how do you lead a team that is, you know, has a 10 and a half hour time difference that you'd have? has a completely different culture. You know, it's a different country. It's a different culture. How do you figure that out? How do you figure out how to motivate those folks um, and, and have them, lead, you know, lead those folks to, to where they need to get to and, and to help them with their careers and help them, again, be a cohesive unit as a team and work to get together well as a team. And so learning a lot of that, I think, is what really that role helped me refine that part of my leadership. Because I'd had teams... I've been managing folks and leading folks since, gosh, I don't, at that point for almost 20 years. Um, but it was mostly always people that were either, you know, in my building or not very far away that I would visit pretty often. Yeah. So I think having those people in different locations and things like that really helped me hone that particular part of, of being a, 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 hopefully a great leader. Yeah, definitely helps you hone your people skills when you're working with people of multiple cultures. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. And you have a new book out. It's called Don't Fake the Funk. So tell us about this book and what inspired you to write it. Uh, yeah. So so uh, in re- specifically in regards to the title, uh, Don't Fake the Funk, it's, I don't even know how, where I picked it up from. I, I've been using that term uh, since college. Uh, I remember using it back in college about different things. And it's funny. I actually did an interview on my own show um, with Grant Cardone. And the intro to my show, um, there's a there's a part where you know the, the the person that does the introduction or whatever says something to the effect of if you're ready to stop faking the funk and take your business to the next level, well Grant Cardone that you know uh, stop faking the funk stuck in his head so much that I met him probably six months later I met him in person. and he remembered <laughs> from six months earlier the interview we did, he remembered that particular part. Because when I met him, the person that introduced me to him said, you know what I know about this guy? He doesn't fake the funk. And <laughs> yeah, I was like, sketchy. wow. This guy remembered that from that long ago. So I, I you know, it's kind of something that's unique. You don't hear people say that very often. So I said, I got to run with it. So, uh, and, and really this book came about because, you know, my first two books were very business specific. This one is, it could, you don't have to be a business owner. You don't have to be an entrepreneur. This is for anybody Anyone who sets goals and in really big goals that they are having trouble achieving, if you set New Year's, New Year's resolutions every year that are, you know, kind of toast by March, um, this book will help you. And I didn't even realize that I had over the years, I've been fortunate enough to, in my athletic career, I, I was, I set six world records and, you know, I had, didn't even realize that I had sort of unbeknownst to myself created this sort of framework on how I attacked my goals. Um, and I did it in the business world. I applied it to my personal life. I applied it to athletics. And I have, I have some folks that I mentor. And specifically, I was trying to help one of them uh, tackle a goal that he'd been three years in the making trying to accomplish. And he just wasn't making headway and got frustrated. And I started to lay out you know, how I approach things. And again, not even realizing that there was a framework there. There was a four-step process that I had used over the years. And literally got done. He's taking notes feverishly. He said, you, you have to start doing, you have to speak on this. Like I, I do keynote speaking. And he said, you have to add this to your, your keynote topics. Well, coincidentally, two, two or three weeks later, I got contacted to do a keynote. And I said, hey, actually, I have a new topic that I haven't actually done on stage yet. Uh, so this would be the first time. But if you're interested, you know, it's about attacking goals and a four-step process. Um, you don't have to be super smart. You don't have to know people. You don't have to have money. I mean, anyone can apply this. And they said, yeah, great. So I did the speaking. It went really well. People loved it. And afterwards, people come up to me and they said, they said, well, you have you written a book about this? And I said, no, I this is the first time I've ever even spoken about it, you know, publicly. And so they kept going and kept going. And then the pandemic hit and I saw folks that were really starting to struggle with, mm-hmm. you know, working virtually and that the whole, those, those changes and those pivots that ever, all of us needed to make. 
And a lot of people in my family, in my personal life, colleagues, et cetera, were struggling with being able to stay on course and stay focused to accomplish some of the things they wanted to accomplish. And so I, I was planning on writing another business-related book. I said, no, I'm pushing that one back. And I'm going to write Don't Fake the Funk to really try to help people with that are struggling, you know, coming out of the pandemic and, and really struggling with getting refocused on their career or in their personal lives. Like I said, any, any type of goal you have. So that's really the genesis of where the book came from and, and, and how it uh, came to be. That's a great story. And as you and I were talking before, um, it's so easy to just make up excuses or talk yourself out of something because of all the reasons you think it can't be done. Um, but it's it's a mindset to convince yourself that something can be done. And, and you know, it, it's worth it, I think. Yeah, and I'll tell you, and I promise Megan and I did not practice this ahead of time, but so the four-step methodology is an acronym, S-M-A-C, SMAC. And the S is, uh, coincidentally enough, is start with yes, um, which is exactly what we're talking about is we so often... And everyone will recognize this person or people in your life, whether it's a family member, work colleague, it doesn't matter, is we all have these people in our lives when you mention to them that, hey, let's do this. Hey, let's go do that. It might be something as simple as, hey, let's go to the zoo today. And that person, the first thing that they want to tell you why it's not a good idea to go to the zoo. Yeah. Well, it's nice and sunny out. Well, it's going to rain later. (laughs) You know, they they start thinking all the reasons why it's not a good idea to go to the zoo. Well, I you know I heard the the hippo baby. They, you can't see the hippos because of, you know the mother just had a baby. So that you know all these different things, and they don't start with yes. Instead of looking at things and say how could we make it work, let's figure out how can now what's required in the steps and the execution that's necessary in some situations to make it work. Maybe those are things you don't want to do. Maybe they're things that are you know, outside of the realm of timing and possibility with where you're at at a particular time. But at least you have the conversation and you start with the mindset of where there's a will, there's a way. This can be done. Am I willing to make the sacrifices necessary to make it happen? And so at least starting with that mindset is the very first thing you have to do. Yep. So what's MAC? Uh, So MAC. So M is model expert behavior. So more than likely, anything that you're trying to do, someone's been there, done that. Even when I was, uh, you know, tackling uh, world records and things like that, that, you know, are obviously something that no one has done, but other people have broken world records and in and, and, and different, you know, avenues, areas, aspects of, of athletics. So find someone who's been down that path before and model their behavior. You don't copy what they're doing necessarily, but they have a framework. They have an approach. What did they do? What are some key things they did? To help them get to where they are, um, and I'm I'm talking about picking you know big people. You know if you if you like Elon Musk and you're trying to sort of semi follow in his footsteps, do some research, read some books about him, read articles, watch videos, find out different things that you know he's done. Um, so that's the M. The A is accountability, creating a sphere of accountability, um, and. Some people, and this is a little counter to what some people say, Megan, and, and that's, you know, oh, well, you know, do, accomplish your things in silence. Don't tell people what you're doing. My approach is completely the opposite. I want to tell everybody and anybody that what I'm trying to do and not what I'm trying to do, what I'm going to do. Yeah. And because I want them to know, and that creates that sphere of accountability. Once a work colleague, and I don't go around, you know, with a you telling people, hey, make sure you check in on me on this, right? No one wants to do that. That's like giving someone homework. And no one likes homework, right? So, but once someone knows what you're trying to accomplish, they're probably going to be supportive. Now, frankly, in that mix, you're going to have some haters as well. Some people that maybe secretly want you to fail. Yeah, That's okay too, because they'll motivate you. Because you know, once they know the goal you're trying to accomplish, you, you, you will stay focused because you know they're going to ask you about it. And you don't want to have the awkward conversation of, oh, I fell short or, oh, I gave up on that or you know whatever that might be. Um, so that sphere of accountability is really, really important. Um, keeping yourself responsible, uh, accountable to yourself, people close to you, and then people even outside of that. And there's a whole bunch of different ways in the book you can do that without actually coming out and asking someone to hold you accountable, which obviously is, is one way to do it. But again, to me, that's like giving people homework. Most people don't like that. And then the C is what I call consistent perseverance. 
And it, they're in order specifically, right? The, the S, start with the S. You have to start with the mindset. If you don't get that right, don't even bother going to the next three because you have to have that right to start. And then finding someone, you know, model expert behavior, creating that sphere of accountability. And then you're ready to tackle the consistent perseverance part. And that is any goal that's big, any goal that's massive, you're going to have some shortcomings. You're going to have challenges along the way. That's just part of the journey. Um, you have to be able to accept that, but you have to have consistent perseverance. It's the proverbial get knocked down seven times and get up eight. Um, and, you know, frankly, I have people that I mentor that are, I call them entrepreneurs, Megan. They, they are, they're, they're maybe working a corporate job, but they want to be an entrepreneur, but they just haven't taken a leap. And honestly, some of them have had the conversation with them that I don't think they have the correct mindset, frankly, to be a successful entrepreneur. They can be really good at a lot of different things. But, you know, in this example, being an entrepreneur is very, very difficult. And you have to have that consistent perseverance. I think that's above all else. I think that's what separates people who are successful entrepreneurs and people who are not so successful is that consistent perseverance. Because as an entrepreneur, you will get knocked down. You are going to take some, some gut shots from, from life and from business, et cetera. And you have to be able to just, you know, dust yourself off, get back up and, and get back at it. And so that's the C, the consistent perseverance. Yeah, I love that. I'm going to use that. And I was going to ask you, and maybe you just answered it with the consistent perseverance, but what's the key difference between those who achieve their goals on a consistent basis and those who never seem to? Yeah, I mean, I mean, again, a lot of it comes down to that. But, but again, I'll go back to the mindset. You know, we talk ourselves out of so many darn things and it's that little voice in the back of your head or it's that the start with no person that's in your life, maybe uh, that, you you know, you deal with and you you tell them, hey, man, I'm thinking about doing X, Y and Z. And, and they again, they were going to start telling you all the reasons why it won't work. And if it's a big goal, you're probably already thinking, man, this is a stretch. And then if you have someone who's close to you in your ear telling you all the six different ways, it's going to make it extremely difficult to do or impossible to do, you kind of give in, you give up instead of thinking again of ways that can work. So I think it's probably those two. You got to have the right mindset. You got, you got to have a, you know, one of my favorite quotes, and I'm not even a big Star Wars fan, but it's a Yoda quote. And, it, and the quote is, do or do not, there is no try. Yeah. And I've preached this to our daughters, you know, growing up is they'll say, I'm going to try to do this. I'm like, no, you're either going to do it or you're not. Don't tell me you're going to try because when you say I'm going to try, you're already giving yourself subconsciously an out. Yeah, an excuse because to fail. Because then you can try and say, well, you know, I tried, but now I'm going to give up. Um, and so you got to say, I'm going to do it. And, I, and you have to figure out how you're going to do it. Now, it could be, you know, one of my athletic goals I had uh, that I declared uh, with my training partners, et cetera. It took me seven years to get there. So, you know, I had the mindset that I'm going to get there no matter what. And it's going to take me a while. Um, it's not going to be easy. And so again, it was that mindset of, I'm going to do this. I'm not going to try to do it. I'm going to do it. And I'm going to have to have consistent perseverance. I'm going to get, have injuries I have to work around. I'm going to have, you know, all sorts of different challenges along the way, but I'm going to do it. Not, I'm going to try to do it. Yeah. That's great advice. Be, I mean, you got to be positive and surround yourself with equally positive people. Yeah. I mean, honestly, I, I have some folks that are, um, that are friends of mine that I, I mean, honestly, I, I, this sounds kind of bad, but I limit my time with them Yeah, because they are the, they, they find the, the, the rain in every cloud. Um, you know, they're, you know, they're the, tech, the person I, I alluded to earlier, you say, oh man, it's beautiful. I'll tell you the sunshine and their response is, well, you know, it's going to rain later. <laughs> yeah. I like, think we all, wow, can we just, can we just enjoy the sunshine? Like, it's great. Look at it. Well, it's going to rain though. It'll be here before you know it. Like, oh my gosh, you know. Yeah, we all have those people in our lives. Yeah, yeah. And what I would question, what I would, what I, along those lines, and this, again, this is going to sound a little bit, um, maybe even a little bit harsh, but if you have people like that in your life, like in your life, in your lives, and what I would ask you to do is look at their lives and think about how, A, happy do you think they really are? And obviously, don't have this conversation with them, but just think about it. Yeah. How much have they accomplished? And when I say accomplished, I don't mean you're rich or you got this promotion. Accomplished is, there's a whole bunch of different meanings of success, right? And definitions of success. 
success could be, you know, I want to be a, a stay at home mom and have five kids and raise a really cool family. That's success that, you know, that's being successful. That could be happy, et cetera, for that particular person, for someone else, they want to climb the corporate ladder and become a CEO who knows. Right. But so those people that are super negative and have a, you know, find the rain in every cloud, really take a step back. If you're questioning that advice is and look at their lives and, and how happy do you really think they are? Because yeah. I would be willing to bet you they're probably not very happy people. Yeah. Um, and it, a lot of it's that mindset, you know, that that if you look for negativity, trust me, it's in life, there. you will find it. It's everywhere, right? Positivity is everywhere too. And so often we just get programmed to just look for the negative things. And I think that's a big, big step for folks, uh, no matter what you want to accomplish. Yeah, that's great advice. So switching gears a bit, let's talk about the, the business that you started. So what do your current organizations, Mr. Biz Solutions and Wentworth Financial Partners, what is it that they do? Yeah, so those are, are uh, both those organizations. So Wentworth Financial Partners, um, that was an initial business. And that was, you know, direct one-on-one working as a, as a you know, business strategist, fractional CFO with business owners. And then what kind of morphed from there was I was having a lot of business owners that were coming to me that needed help, but couldn't necessarily kind of start up or still early stages revenue, couldn't really afford to hire someone as a fractional CFO, but they needed the help. And so I really started to think about how I could help those folks reach more folks, have a bigger impact. And so obviously there's only 24 hours in a day. I can't scale time. I can't create time. But how can I try to scale that as best I can, as well as make it very affordable for those business owners that are, you know, like I said, sort of uh, don't have the revenue to support hiring, uh, you know, a fractional CFO. And that was where Mr. Biz Solutions kind of kicked in. And so we have several different things there. So obviously we have the books, we have an online course, um, we have uh, most importantly, a continuity program, a membership program. So you can come in and I've got myself and five other experts that we do virtual sessions um, every month to talk about specific things. And these other five experts are experts in fields other than what I'm an expert in, right? So for example, we have an attorney that comes on each month. So, you know, you could have a legal question that, you know, I think people overlook a lot of these things and they try to Google the way they Google their way out of things. Yeah. Um, but you know, legal is not something you want to really trifle <laughs> with, right? It's can you it could cost you your business, frankly, um, not setting things up. I had an example of someone I'd met just real quick and super smart guy, very successful businessman. Uh, now he's worth, I don't know, hundreds of millions of dollars, has his own Gulfstream jet, all this other stuff. But he told me a story about uh, the first company that he started. He tried, he cheaped his way out on, uh, on having an attorney review when he took in private equity money. And he got six years into the business. They grew it like gangbusters. They're doing 60 million a year in revenue. And the private equity investors came into him and said, hey, by the way, pack up your stuff. We don't need you anymore. We're going to buy you out. <sighs> and he said, wait, I'm the founder. You can't, you can't buy me out. And they literally pulled out the contract and said, here, look on this page, this paragraph right here. Wow. We have a $500,000 buyout. So he got bought out for a half a million dollars, his own company that had grown to doing 60 million plus a year in revenue um, and was you know, wildly successful got bought out of his own company because, you know, as he put it, he just cheaped out on the legal side. So, you know, we have experts like that. We have a, a financing expert. So when you need different financing aspects to your business, you know, I have people come to me all the time and they'll say, Hey, I've got to sign some loan papers. I really don't know what this stuff means. I know I should, but I really don't because it's just not in my wheelhouse. Um, you know, so we have someone to be able to explain that, you know, when, when the banker says they need X, Y, and Z, why do they need that? What are they looking at? You know, how do I present my business in the, in the most positive light? So anyway, we have six experts in that continuity program. And that is, again, much more affordable. It's all virtual. You can come on and ask any questions you want. We'll help you and help you, you know, continue to grow your business and, and expand and help you over the rough spots and the challenges that are inevitable uh, in running a business. Yeah, that's an amazing offering. So since starting your businesses, what are some of your proudest achievements? Oh, that's an easy one. Uh, proudest achievements by far. Most of the businesses I help are family businesses, um, you know, private companies. And it hit me very early on. I was helping a client and he literally, I'll, I'll spare you some of the, 
some of the non-savory details, but um, he literally wanted to meet with me to tell me in person that I had helped save his marriage Wow! because I helped him with his business. And his business was failing and he was working harder and harder and harder. And he had three young boys and, you know, he would, he has a strong work ethic. So he just worked harder. So he's working more hours. Problem is he didn't quite, he, he was really good at what he did, but he's not good at running a business. And, you know, we were, I was able to come in and help him. And we made some, initially some minor tweaks to his business and he, he just took off. And so he was able to scale back his hours. He's able to spend time. You know, his wife was super frustrated because she had a full-time job and yet they have three young kids and she was, you know, running the kids here and doctors and sports practices and everything else while he's essentially an absent father because it's not because he's a bad guy. It's because he's just trying to work his butt off to provide for his family and his business isn't working. So his answer was, I'll work harder. I'll work more. And that really taught me a lesson of the impact that helping business owners has, you know, so often you have businesses that are family owned and it's not just that immediate family that might own the business, but you might have a cousin, aunt, uncle, brother that's working in the business as well. So think about the impact of that immediate family and the, you know, the, the, the tethers out from that family as well, that if that business goes under, holy cow, what's the impact on that family overall? When all of a sudden you have I don't know, six, eight people within the family that all don't have a job. Um, and, and, you know, that impact and seeing that impact in the positive ways that, you know, I can help folks with things like that is by far for me, that's just the game changer. I mean, it's just so rewarding to be able to see that happen and see it happen over and over and over again. Um, is that that's without question. That's, that's the most rewarding part about what I do and the thing that I enjoy the most. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you're changing lives. Yeah, literally. And, and like I said, I hadn't, I guess I hadn't really thought about it that much until that one, you know, that one client several years ago that, you know, and th- this was, this guy worked in construction. This guy was like a big burly old school construction guy, you know, uh, for him to tell me he wanted to meet me in person and tell me in person I mean, I'm not an emotional person at all. And it almost brought me to tears. Wow. Uh, again, because I'm thinking, you know, I've got three kids and I'm thinking about, man, you know, what if that was me? And I probably would have approached it the same way. I just keep working harder. Again, I do things. I don't try to do things. I do them. So I would just keep, keep trying harder and harder and harder, you know, to do things. And so I could really relate with, you know, where he was and then realizing how much of an impact it had on his family and how positive it was and things like that. And um, again, picture this big old school construction guy and he starts off the the conversation with me. We met at a Panera Bread because he wanted to meet me right away. And I'm like, geez, what's going on? It's so urgent that we couldn't even just talk on the phone. So we're at a Panera Bread. It's a little two table, uh, two top table, right? So pretty small. And this big burly construction guy leans across the table and starts the meeting with this. I want to kiss you right now. <laughs> I said, Scott, first of all, you can't afford that. It's not on the price list. Uh, so what the heck's going on? <laughs> um, and he, you know, he said, I, I just wanted to tell you in person, you know, the impact that you've had on my family and et cetera, et cetera. So um, yeah, that's, it's so, so rewarding. And, yeah. Uh, it makes it all worth it. So what is a fractional CFO? And can you tell us some of the advantages of, of finding one. Yeah. So fractional CFO, think about it this way. And by the way, when I was in the corporate world, when, when I met, uh, I had a mentor coming out, trying to figure out what I wanted to be when I grow up. I didn't, I'd never even heard of a fractional CFO. I had no idea what the heck it was. Um, and, um, it's think of a business that needs, uh, a CFO, a chief financial officer needs that business strategist, uh, type of role, a strategic business partner, but they don't need someone full-time. They don't need someone that's going to work 60, 70, 80 hours a week. They're not that big yet, maybe. Or maybe the owner has some of those skills, but the owner's kind of you know, uh, being stretched in a lot of different ways and needs a little bit of help. Um, it's, so it's, it's bringing on a, a chief financial officer resource in a part-time, fractional, on-demand type of thing to where you know, they're working less than 40 hours. Um, you know, I've got some clients that I only meet with once a month. Um, I've got others that I'm at their office every single week for four to five hours, as well as other work outside of that. It just depends. Every, every engagement I have with clients is different, but 
It's, it's, it's having that resource because oftentimes with a small to medium sized business, even if you have departments and of course the owner has, you know, direct reports, let's say they have five direct reports, more than likely those five direct reports only know their silo piece of the business. So it's very valuable for an owner to have someone else that can see the macro view of the business to make sure that department A and what they're doing is congruent with the goals we have for department D. Um, and they're not going to get us in, a, in hot water in three years because now we've been going in disparate directions, with, which in the short term made sense, but in the long term don't make sense. Um, and so having that resource, I think, is, is very critical. And again, that's the role I serve a lot is as the owner to have that macro view strategist to be able to say, hey, by the way, we need to shift gears on this. We need to shift gears on that. You know, my undergrads in accounting, um, you know, I've got a master's degree in financial management, but I'm not. I'm a I'm a more of a strategic person. I'm not a day-to-day. I don't close the books. I don't do any of that kind of stuff. I'm thinking more about how do we get the business where it needs to be, you know, in five, eight, 10 years. How do let what's the exit plan? You know, what's the owner's ultimate way they want to exit the business? Um, whether that's in, you know, two or three years or whether that's in 15 or 20 years, we need to make sure that the decisions you make in the short term are congruent with that long-term goal because while it might not seem as such, there are often times you can make short-term decisions that make a lot of sense in the near term, but really could be, you know, be detrimental to your longer-term plans. And, and the shortest way to answer, you know, uh, I tell people when they ask me what I do, I don't necessarily tell them uh, I don't have a title to it. I just tell them I help owners run their businesses more profitably, more efficiently, um, because in a nutshell, that's really what it is. Um, and I, a lot of business owners have never even heard of a fractional CFO, but once I kind of explain sort of the role and some of the ways I can help, they go, oh my gosh, where have you been? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, for small and, and medium-sized businesses to have access to a CFO is, I'm sure, invaluable. And, and you know, the strategic vision that that role brings to the table. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And, and, and again, another aspect to it is, as a business owner, especially to, you know, if you're a small business owner, maybe even on the medium side, you get pulled, you wear so many dark, different hats, you get pulled in so many different directions that oftentimes your head is, you get buried in the weeds. Yeah. And one of the things that I'm able to do is basically grab you and pull your head up out of the weeds and say, look over the horizon, <laughs> look where we're headed. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, I, I have one particular person who's been a client for, uh, I guess about five years or so. And that's all he wants me for. He said, I get, I know that's a weakness of mine. I get buried. I have trouble delegating. And so I meet with him once a, once a month for 60 to 90 minutes, cell phones go outside the office. The door gets closed. There's no interruptions. Phone goes on silent. His, his office phone goes on silent. No one is allowed to bother us. And we sit down for 60 to 90 minutes and just talk about the strategic vision. Just talk about looking out on that horizon. And again, making sure that some of the short-term things that we're doing make sense in the long-term. And if not, how do we change that, et cetera? So, you know, having that, I think, resource, uh, you know, I found to be very helpful uh, for, for business owners. And having had so much experience with, with these smaller businesses, where do most of them fail? Um, you know, it's, it's a variety of things. It, a lot of it depends on the, the owner's primary skill set, you know, what are things that are in their wheelhouse? Um, you know, as I mentioned with the, the, the fellow earlier, a lot of times business owners, you know, they get into business and they're really good at the widgets they create or the service they provide, but they might not have experience running a business. So a lot of that comes down to, you know, I have, um, I call it, I have three pillars of financial success. And that's where every single client I have, we start with those three things. Some businesses are okay in two of the three, need help just in one. Some of them need help in all three, et cetera, et cetera. But those three pillars are cash flow. Mm-hmm. Um, and it doesn't matter how old your business is, where you're at in the business uh, life cycle, cash flow can almost always be improved. There's subtle ways to do that. And you know, the, even if your cash flow is okay, uh, you can run into problems. I mean, uh, people don't realize, you know, you see Amazon and what a, what a behemoth it is now, right? About 10, I guess maybe 12 years ago now, Amazon ran the cash flow issues, believe it or not, right? They're making hundreds of millions of dollars and they ran the cash flow problem. So there's no shame in the game. It happens and for a variety of reasons. 
Um, but so starting with cash flow, making sure we get that tightened down, make sure we make any tweaks we can to, to make that as optimal as possible. And then we go to, I hate to say it, Megan, it's the B word. It's not the one people are thinking of though. It's budget. Yep. <laughs> that was the one I was thinking. <laughs> I, I guess I'm an accountant. So <laughs> yes, yes. Um, and Literally, a budget to me is so critically important that if I meet with a prospective client and they balk at having a budget, that's a deal breaker for me. I, I can't work with them um, because a budget is so critically important. A budget gives you your goal for the year and it enables you each month to determine, are you trending towards that goal? If not, why not? And what changes do we make right now? You don't get to the September and say, holy crap, we're going to miss our revenue goal for the year. How do we turn this huge battleship between September and December to achieve that goal. Oftentimes, depending on the business, it's too late, right? It's too difficult to be able to make that change and not pivot that quickly. And so budget is just so critical, um, having that and tracking and trending against it every single month. Um, And then finally, and this is one that, that pops up in almost, I'm trying to think, I think there might be one business. I used to always say that I've never had it happen, but I think there is, has been one subsequent now that I've had a client. Every, so I'll say this, every client except one that I've ever taken on has had pricing problems and you might not realize their pricing problems. And, uh, you know, I, I, I coined it uh, the silent business killer and the silent business killer is a product or service that you have that unknowingly is priced at a at a best a break even, but oftentimes at a loss position. Now you say, Ken, why would I do that? Well, you wouldn't do it knowingly. You have done it because maybe you did the pricing for whatever that might be on the back of an envelope when you were generating the idea, never went back, never revisited, cost of change, et cetera. And oftentimes what happens with that, you know, that silent business killer, that product that's unprofitable, is you sell it like crazy because it is priced too low. <laughs> And so think of it this way, you could increase volume and your revenue is going through the roof, but your net income is getting lower and lower and lower. You're losing more and more money or you're, you know, uh, you could be at a loss position or you're making less and less money. Because when you have a a product or service that is losing money, think of it this way. Every one of them you sell, you're losing money. Yep. It's a race to the bottom. Yeah. Your your revenue looks great. Um, And I say this all the time is revenue is vanity. Profit is sanity. Um, and so revenue looks great. You're like, oh my gosh, this makes no sense whatsoever. And again, it pop into you start having cash flow problems because every one of the every unit of this product or service you sell is actually costing you money. You might as well tape a whatever hundred dollar bill to every product that goes out the door, which obviously sounds really silly. But so getting that pricing really honed in, and I don't mean you know just oh just raise your prices by twenty percent across the board. That's not what I mean at all. I mean peeling back the onion on pricing especially on some of your high volume thing, uh, products or services to ensure that they're at the margins you want. Because even if they're not at a loss position uh, or, you know, or you break even, they might be at a position that doesn't make sense for your industry. So if you're in an industry where, you know, you should be running a net margin of, I don't make it up 20% and you've got products that are out there that are at 5%, well, yeah, they're still making money, but they should be making a lot more and they're dragging down your overall net margin which again is dragging down your net profits, which is going to cause you cash flow problems, et cetera. So really getting that that, that third pillar nailed down with with pricing. And sometimes that's creating a pricing model and having the sales folks use it um, if you don't have that already, as opposed to, you know, one of the other things that kills people often with this is, is discounts, is they give discounts and they say, man, I really want this job. And if I get my foot in the door with this big company, I can get a lot more business. Well, they expect that same pricing when they come back to you, you know, two months later or three months later for another project. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. They don't forget. Yeah. And when you, you can't deliver, they don't, they don't, you don't win the bid. And then, so now you price something, you know, that initial project, you know, in an unprofitable manner. And now you can never make it back because you're trying to charge them your normal prices and they don't want to pay them. Yeah. Um, so you got to be really careful about that. Um, and that, that's, like I said, that's why I call it the silent business killer is that, you know, intuitively, it makes no sense. Revenue is going up and net income is going down. Like, wait a minute, that's not how this is supposed to work. <laughs> yeah. So that's great advice. Cash flow, forecast, and pricing. Got to get those yes. three things right. Yeah, so- absolutely. And like I said, I start with those. Every client, we start with those three things uh, initially in the first you know 60 days or so. 
once we get those, we start, we branch off into other things. Because again, I look at those as the, the, the three pillars. You have to have those foundationally correct and humming along like a well-oiled machine before you start even consider doing other things in the business. So as you look out into 2022, what's the biggest challenge that you see facing small businesses and what advice can you give to help them overcome it? Well, specifically with small businesses, and I think uh, everyone hopefully has learned this lesson uh, during the pandemic, but one of the things I often look at with, with, um, with clients and, and folks that I uh, mentor, advise, et cetera, is, and this is going to sound, sound kind of silly, but um, that, that behemoth I mentioned earlier, Amazon, isn't going away and they're going to continue to grow, right? They have a lot of assets in a lot of different areas. And they're going to continue to expand. So what, one of the things that I always, we, we kind of push this into some of our strategic planning is how, how do we Amazon-proof our business or as, as best we can Amazon-proof our business? That might sound a little paranoid, but I want to make sure that, you know, who knows, right? Amazon started out as an online bookstore and now yeah. look at it, right? And they're continuing to expand into other areas of business, et cetera. And so I'm trying to, again, I'm strategic to a fault, Megan. And I say that because I'm thinking out five years, 10 years, maybe 15 years, but it's to a fault because in the meantime, I trip over the curb that's right in front of me. Um, so, um, you know, really thinking about those types of things of, you know, again, kind of asking that question, you know, is this something that Amazon might get into? Is this something that, you know, I might have to compete with them in the future? And that doesn't mean you don't get into the business if, if the answer is yes, but how do you protect yourself as best you can? Um, risk management is super important. And, and, and that's part of that risk management is, not putting all your eggs in one basket to where if Amazon moved into that particular part of the business that you would just, you know, you'd go belly up and, and wouldn't be able to continue um, business. But I think that's a big thing is, you know, think about not only Amazon proof, but, you know, w- what happens if, if slash when there's another pandemic and there's a lockdown, what, how, what impact does that have on your business? What should you be doing right now to protect yourself against that if it happens in two, three, four, five years from now? to be better positioned because as we all know, many businesses did not make it through the pandemic because yeah. they were not positioned. You know, we had a lot of businesses, I think for lack of a better term, Megan, that, you know, a lot of owners that became fat, dumb and happy during the economic prosperity that we had in the whatever, 10, 11 years or so leading up to the pandemic, things were good. And I think a lot of business owners got a little complacent and thought, geez, I can not have to do a whole lot and I can grow you know, 10, 12, 15% year over year pretty easily. And not thinking about, you know, strengthening up their balance sheet to be prepared for an economic downturn, which I was doing. I was the one, I was the one in 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 2018 and 19 aligning my clients to say, this is, you know, there's an economic downturn coming. Of course, I had no idea. I'm not Nostradamus. I didn't know there was gonna be a pandemic. Yeah. But just the, the normal business cycle was typically five years. Yeah. And we I, had been at 10 years of success and prosperity. I'm like, it's coming. There's an economic downturn coming. I want to make sure that we are positioned to when that happens, we can weather that storm. And frankly, we can not only weather it, but come out even stronger beyond. And um, so, you know, some of my clients that were in that that mode of, man, this is so easy. And, you know, I'm, you know Ken's just being paranoid. The pandemic hit and they're like, oh my gosh, you are a genius. I'm like, hold on. Again, I didn't know there was going to be a pandemic. I didn't know it was going to be like this. Okay. Yeah. Um, so I, I'm not, don't give me that much credit, but, um, you know, they were positioned and some of their competitors had to go out of business. And so, you know, we were able to buy assets at dimes on the dollar. Um, we were able to save jobs of people, you know, uh, competitors that were closing up shop. So we were able to get experienced workers um, in our industry, save their jobs. Um, able to get some, uh, enable the biz, the owner that was going out of business, or, you know, bankruptcy, et cetera, to get some money out of the business um, by selling some of those assets, et cetera. So it was really a win-win situation in many, uh, many occurrences. So, you know, but that's very, very important is make sure you're positioned for whatever that might be down the road, um, yeah. that you have that strong, uh, strong balance sheet to be able to withstand some of those things, you know, making sure your cash reserves are enough. But at the same time, you don't have too much in cash, right? You don't have, uh, you know, cash assets sitting on your balance sheet that aren't really doing anything for you. I mean, you want some, you can sleep better at night, but you don't want to overdo it. It's that fine line between, um, you know, where you're at with that and, and being able to have still have plenty of liquidity in your business, but also utilize that money as best you can to continue growing it. 
Yeah. Sounds like you positioned your clients to weather the storm. Yeah. I mean, thankfully, uh, you know, we didn't, I, I, and I would admit it if I did, but I didn't lose any clients. And, and as a matter of fact, we had, um, you know, we've got several of our clients had uh, come out of the pandemic and had record breaking years in 2021. Yeah. Um, because we, we, we kind of slung, slung shot. Is that even a word? Uh, we, we slingshotted. I don't even know how to say that in the past tense. We slingshotted yeah. out of the pandemic and because we were positioned well for it. And we're able to do some of those things I mentioned where, you know, if a competitor goes out of business, now we have opportunities to, to increase our market share and service their clients that they were, you know, and their customers that were, they, uh, they're no longer going to be able to do because they're out of business. And so really, you know, being able to, to be in that position, to be in a position of strength, yeah. And not having the bank calling for the loan payments and, and you know struggling with all that. Yeah, being able to take advantage of opportunities when you're um, you know a strong enough business to do so. Absolutely, yeah. Ken, thank you so much for being my guest today. Yeah, absolutely, Megan. I'm, I'm again, I'm honored to be back on the show. I'm, I'm glad you last asked me back, and I had yeah. a great time talking with you. Yeah, we're going to have to do this regularly. Um, I've enjoyed speaking with you and hearing about your experiences. And thank you for sharing your story with us again. Uh, good luck with the new book. Um, thank you. It's a it's available on Amazon. I know that. Anywhere else? Yep. No, Amazon's the easiest way to find it. Yeah, I guess the Amazon is all you need. So that's right. That's right. That's behemoth. <laughs> <laughs> so to our our listeners, please tune in next week. And until then, take care. If you're ready to boost efficiency and streamline your accounting processes at significant cost savings, it's time to talk with Personif. Their people-powered solutions have transformed the delivery of back office tasks and general accounting functions for decades, partnering with clients to provide everything from accounts payable to payroll services. See what Personif can do for you by visiting personif.com. You've been listening to CFO Weekly presented by Personif. Please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts to hear all of our episodes. Want to learn more? Check out personif.com. Thanks for listening.